Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different conversations from musicians to authors, doctors, environmentalists, or cooks in their own kitchen. It's real people with real stories. PodFest 38 features Liz Garbus, the director of the Deep Sea documentary Becoming Cousteau. Then we're going to rock it up with Chad and Chris from the group Live. Finally, we'll dig into the creative process of author Liza Nash Taylor. Her book, Etiquette for Runways. This is PodFest 38. <laughs> Episode number 334 is with Liz Garbus from Becoming Cousteau. I am doing well. How are you doing? Absolutely fantastic. I got to tell you, Jacques Cousteau was such a major part of my childhood growing up in Montana. He was every reason why I wanted to discover the world. Oh, well, me too. So I'm glad to hear that. That's why I made this movie. To, to do this documentary, first of all, I love the idea that you're putting it inside theaters because you have to experience Jacques Cousteau. And, and that's the thing about it is that I've never seen him on the big screen. It's always been the television screen. That's right. And I think many people didn't know that he actually started off as a filmmaker. You know, he had a film that The Silent World, which won the Oscar and the Palme d'Or at Cannes. So, you know... Seeing it on the big screen um, is really was a treat for us as well. We wanted to bring that bring that to uh, a wider audience. There was there was a quote that my father shared with me back in the 1970s. He used to tell me all the time because we would watch it on Sunday nights. He would say, "Man walked on the moon, but Jacques Cousteau walked in water." That's right. And in fact, you know, he did um, see parallels between what he was doing and the space race. I mean, it's easy to forget, but nobody had, you know, filmed the undersea world the way that he had. Nobody, we didn't have the technology. And he developed uh, the aqua lung, which was, um, you know, the precursor of scuba. And, you know, once he was able to dive and go deeper and further and stay longer, he wanted to show everyone what he was seeing. So he built a housing for a camera. And, um, you know, this has brought to us not just the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau that we remember from our childhood, but, you know, the, the, all of the, um, the, the wonderful, uh, you know, TV shows that our children are growing up with like blue planet or mm -hmm. shark week, et cetera, et cetera. So it really was, um, a pretty mind blowing, uh, uh, innovation that he brought to our world. Creating this documentary, Becoming Cousteau, I mean, you, you didn't just walk up to the door and knock on it and say, Hey, we're going to do this. I mean, they, you, you put a lot of time and energy into this process. That's right. I mean, it started about six years ago when wow. I was reading a book to my young son, re realizing that there was this, you know, you know, uh, you know, this amazing hero from my childhood I wanted to show him. And um, I couldn't find anything online. So that led to a scavenger hunt, which led us to ultimately to France to um, knock on the door, as you say, of the widow of Cousteau and find out what, what was happening with all of this footage. And um, it took about three years <laughs> to get permission to access the archives. But here we are. Yeah, but don't do you look at yourself as being not only an archaeologist, but also a teacher? Because, you know, Generation Z and millennials really don't know the, the true experience of this man. They don't know the experience of this man, and yet, you know, their whole world views have been, you know, affected because mm -hmm. of him. Because, you know, we, we now have all these, you know, relations, you know, we now have a real window into the undersea world, which is, um, had been hidden 
for centuries <laughs> from our eyes. So, um, and I think what's important is, is one of the things the younger generation does know is the fragility of the undersea world. And this was something that, that Cousteau started talking about as early as 1970s. He started talking about um, the need to project, protect, sorry, these ecosystems undersea. And I think that a younger generation certainly knows about that. And it's really interesting to see someone, you know, 50 years ago talk about the need to protect the oceans. Who was he when he wasn't on the water? We did, we never really got a good shot of that. That's right. You know, we do explore the personal life of, of this man and, uh, you know, messy is a word that somebody might <laughs> use to describe it. He had, um, you know, he had a, a wife and two sons with him. You know, we, we got to know aboard the Calypso, but he also had a another family who was uh, hidden from public view mm-hmm. until the death of his first wife. So we explore that. And Cousteau himself um, confronts his own flaws. So, um, so, yeah, there's a lot that even those of us growing up with the show uh, will learn uh, anew, I think. Did you get to go into his journals or anything like that? And the reason why I bring that up is because it always seemed like he was onto subjects that we could all tap into so easily. Did he do research on us and then he sh- w- would take his ships there? He Well, he we did have access to his journals. And, you know, some of the things, you know, he was really interested um, at a certain point in his career uh, about de- uh, developing undersea civilizations. Wow. He even speculated that perhaps humans would evolve to have gills and be able to breathe underwater. And like the space race, you know, or like, you know, talks now of sort of life, you know, can we build civilizations on Mars? You know, he thought about doing that undersea. But then as he matured, he thought, no, 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 we're, we're not going to bulldoze uh, the seafloor and, and try to live down there. We have to project, protect this fragile ecosystem because our humanity depends on it. I, I can't imagine what he would be going through today in the way of this, you know, this greenhouse effect and the warming of the, of the planet and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about this stuff in 1992 at the first uh, Global Earth Summit. Um, and he felt that, you know, that was a very, very promising moment with all these world leaders coming together to talk about the effects of pollution. And, you know, he was already talking about, you know, warming waters and all of that. So I think, um, you know, 30 years later, he would certainly be disappointed at the lack of progress. Yeah. Wouldn't you say that Jacques Cousteau, in reality, was one of the very first social media connections in the way that it created water cooler conversation at work? Oh, that's funny. Well, you know, I was too little to have any work water cooler conversations, <laughs> but he certainly was one of the most recognizable faces on the planet. And, you know, and not a political figure, really just somebody advocating for the oceans. And there really is nobody like that today. And um, and that's a, that's a real loss for us. So what's one thing that you that you had a shock and awe moment when you were doing your research? Was there something that stole your breath? You're going, my God, I didn't even know this. One really interesting thing was that um, to sustain his work aboard the Calypso before he became a big TV celebrity, he um, was financed by the oil companies. And um, in, in the words of one of his collaborators, uh, responsible for the great wealth of Abu Dhabi, um, wow. mapping undersea drilling locations. So, I mean, I think, you know, in today's eyes, the fact that Cousteau worked with oil companies would seem very shocking. But, of course, then so little was understood about the potential dangers of oil spills, et cetera, et cetera, that for him, it, 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 he, he, he needed a way to find money, and this was a, a way to do it. So that was pretty um, that was pretty surprising, for sure. So what do you think the world is missing today without Jacques Cousteau? 
the world is missing a figure who can speak on behalf of the undersea ecosystems without being um, politicized. You know, it's really an issue that um, is not Democrat, Republican. It's not uh, democracy versus autocracy. It's something that all of us on this globe um, need to be concerned about. And um, we're really lacking that kind of beloved figure who speaks on behalf of the oceans. And um, that's what Jacques Cousteau was. He he was such a superhero to me as a kid. I I remember sitting there when I'd even go to the lakes up in Montana and stuff like that. I'd get out of the boat. I'm Jacques Cousteau. Let's do this. Let's go explore. And and I loved going in there, especially when it came to kelp and 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 doing different things up there around the Seattle area. I love to study what 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 goes on inside the water because of him. Yeah, I think there are many people who um, you know became marine biologists, et cetera, et cetera, because of what he what he showed us. And you know that's you know it's really it's incredible what how a life can transform history well i'll tell you what this movie's going to change people's lives and they're they're going to credit the the opportunity they had in the theater or or if they get it on demand i mean this this is this something that we need right now that we can put our fingers into and our imagination thank you so much please come back to the show anytime in the future the door is always going to be open for you thank you very much i enjoyed our conversation well you be brilliant today okay Okay, I'll try my best. Unplugged and totally uncut with Chad and Chris from live. Welcome back to Charlotte, Chris. I know. How about that? Uh, Let's hear about those hornets, man. (laughs) I love it. Dude, I can't imagine you being over there on Carmel Road, jamming out with a band, and everybody that's speeding by 50,000 miles an hour had no idea that you were inside that huge house. (laughs) Well, that's the house I grew up in. Uh, We had the attic. That was where my old band, Imaginary Heroes, used to cut our teeth up there. It was uh, the good old day. Am I sensing a reunion coming? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was such yeah. a, a time of Charlotte where, where Carmel Road and, and that house was like, that was the magic place. And that and that's where you hung out and everybody <laughs> dreamed of playing basketball in the backyard. Uh, well, that's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. A lot of magic went down in that house. <laughs> and then you had to go and join a band called Live, and now we can't talk basketball. What's up with that, dude? <laughs> <laughs> what a trip, right? Hey, we're, a trip. we're big basketball fans in the band, yeah. so it makes it very easy. <laughs> I think when I, when I first uh, really like hanging out, a pub with Chris, uh, just talking shop. Uh, it was one of the things I started really getting pretty heavy into, like, you know, I don't know, Baron Davis questions, yeah, grandmama, yeah. and you know, yeah. like I can, I can name all those. And I was yeah. like, oh man, I'm goobing out on the NBA. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> How do you guys feel about LeBron James going to, back to Cleveland? I think it's awesome. Great. It's all awesome. classy move. Uh, well, you know, we in the band, we really thought that he was following our lead because we took the band and we went back to York, Pennsylvania yeah. and started to write our record there. And like there's this real feel good environment in our hometown. We were like, LeBron probably saw that and was like, you know, we should probably do it. Of course he did. He yeah. follows me on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely.
guys are so socially networked in, it's almost like holding the inside sleeve of an album, except I can hear your voice. Oh, that's a great way to put it. I never thought about it, but yeah, yeah it's imperative. I think it's extremely important that we uh, we we be open in that in that way. I mean, this you know you got to have content. It's, it's it's almost like we're our own reality show. You know, it's like if yeah. get on board, watch well, what happens. things that uh, was important to me in the band was to explain in very plain and simple terms the journey to our fans. Um, anybody that's ever been in a relationship um, where there was heartbreak and breakup, uh, you, you always, uh, once some time goes by, of course, you can look back on the relationship and you can see the good attributes of it. and tons of pain and our fans if you will it was sort of like you know mom and dad are breaking up and the fans were the kids and what we were trying really hard to do is not have anybody try and pick sides just say you know this is a relationship that's not working for us it's not healthy for us and it's time to move on and along with that of course then you get you know this incredible new talent and uh, you know not to diminish uh, Chris at all but it's like having a new toy it's like he does all these like fantastic new things is where he goes with his melodies his chord progressions you know for example I just explained to somebody the other night you know Chris is the best guitar player I've ever been in a band with I mean he, he you know so having that dynamic of you know true tremendous instrumentalist changes what you can do um, how you perform and how you look at the songs right about him on vocals that kid can really bend those vocals and he can take it to a level to where you're going to see every guy sitting in the front seat of their car trying to impersonate him because he takes it to a level that we're not used to yeah it's uh it's so thank you i appreciate it's so passionate and one of the things is it, it took us three years to build this record to make the record and part of it was allowing ourselves the time and the space to walk away from the material at times and then come back and say, okay, well, that's not good enough. We, w we want better. We want, uh, uh, we want to hit some marks. Yeah, and I said early on that we have nothing but time. We, we can afford to take our time and let these songs develop, grow, uh, and we should not settle for anything. We, we can't afford to. This has to be uh, uh, the real deal. And, and we've, we've made a record. I mean, I'm, I'm so proud of this record. I know that social media and all those things have changed so much since whatever it was eight years ago that Live put out a record. But I'm looking at this like incredible hard work and dedication and devotion that we put into it to rebirth the band 
And uh, I just, man, I want people to get it and to get it in their hands and to, you know, have a chance. To well, and our it. producer, uh, Jerry Harrison and uh, and Tom Lord Algie, who, who mixed the record, they felt the same way. This was an all in, uh, you know, w- which, by the way, was for me an, an absolute treat and pleasure to get to know these guys and work with them as well. Um, but everyone has been very careful about how they've handled. Uh, I mean, e- everything has been scrutinized down to the arrangements down to the tempos we've been very careful to uh make sure that our what we're saying is crystal clear and uh you know i I think we've done a damn good job at it you said that everything is crystal clear because in listening to the music you give me an opportunity as a listener i can go in and spend some time with the bass guitar i can hear every single instrument and still love the same song i've always been a big uh fan of space um you know the you know the let like less is more yeah uh, using old like some old u2 type of stuff like like to reference that kind of a band like how do you get such a big pocket from you know three dudes basically playing uh, you know, guitar, bass, drums, and we kind of went back to that just real roots, um, letting the groove. I mean, Chad Gracie, Patrick Dahlheimer are are a serious, serious rhythm section. That was one of the biggest treats for me was to hear them play in a room for the first time three years ago. Like, you know, I had toured with live with you guys when I was in a, my old band, Unified Theory, but I, I never really understood, never, never got how good they were until I stood in front of the kit and. Like, you know, these guys grew up, they learned to play together. That's just, that's how, how it rolls. you on that guitar to your your fingers are going to their riffs and your your vocals are coming out that had to have been mind-blowing to you you're going my god i used to listen to this well, yeah there's a little bit of that but you know the reason why it works it, it's worked with me is that i i've 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 worked with so many i've been the, i've been that guy for my whole career i mean i've i've worked with you know blind melon i've worked with guys from pearl jam i've worked with uh west borland from limp biscuit i've worked with a lot of people so i've always kind of been that guy um you know coming off the bench uh you know uh, so it, it it was just sort of one of those now things. you're a starter yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's just the classic you know the quarterback you know uh gets hurt and then the guy that's been sitting on the bench the whole season or his whole career gets to come out and like give me the ball give me the ball let me show you what i can do and uh live has been such a, an awesome opportunity to uh um, you know, I, I'm, 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 I, I like to say that I'm a great team player because um, my job is to make my bandmates sound as good as I know that they sound. So hopefully what I can do is, is highlight and, and 
you know, vocally point out stuff um, as we go along in each song. So they do the same for me. That's what makes a great band. First of all, in this modern age, the fact that you guys are in the studio together is a shock to me because most people would rather yeah. just send it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right. so, yeah. so to hear that, that you guys were physically there, that's so Beatlesque, man. I mean, that's the way it yeah, used yeah. to be. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the, probably the fundamental differences and one of the reasons why we put live on hiatus, whatever it was, six years ago, was that Chad, Patrick, and I were so deeply devoted to creating ensemble music and in order to create ensemble music you're right you have to be in a room there has to be chemistry you have to look at each other um you know we're uh we're a band that uh we can actually play our instruments i mean you know there's a lot of you know auto tuning and and drum doctoring and things like that that go on in this day and age and not to say i mean there are tremendous musicians out there doing it but um, when you hear the record, for example, I had somebody recently, they were talking about the track Siren's Call on the record, and they said, you know, it's so dense. And, uh, and I said, well, interesting enough, if you listen to it, Chris's guitar is on one side and my guitar is on the other. right down through the center and the drum sets on there and that's basically the record just the band sitting and performing live in the studio the extra special sauce that went on to it was jerry harrison our producer his daughter aishlin was in the studio and she has a tremendous voice and he said well, why don't you go in there and sing some background vocals and uh, so that wound up getting yeah, that's what you on. hear in the chorus of that song yeah. like the screaming the sirens that's that's her and so mm. so we got you know and the point is you know again we weren't so precious with it you know, if we got a great take, awesome. If we didn't get the take that day, you know, we come back in the studio and do it again. There's always tomorrow. Just press record. Um, and I, I, that's the big probably change up is that it's not so career oriented or career focused. We just want to make great art. I'm probably driving those guys in the other room crazy because I'm taking so much time. Chris, you got to call back so that we can go into a deeper conversation. And, and hey, I would love to. I would love to. There's there's a parallel here between, which I think is interesting, between uh, Charlotte and the Hornets coming back to town. And uh, and here you come, me, mister. <laughs> me coming into live. And and uh, I, I, I'm just a huge fan of Charlotte. Always have been. And I, I just love it. It's my hometown. don't hate yourself for being away for eight years dude they've had kids now they're going to say i heard this great band eight years ago i want to introduce you to live i, th- I think yeah, it was a right. brilliant eight. no doubt no so. doubt i used to think that i really knew 
are unplugged and totally uncut with Liza Nash Taylor. I say it that way because I want you to get this book in your library. Etiquette for Runaways. Man, it's an exciting historical fiction look at the complex time, centered on how illegal alcohol fueled the Roaring Twenties. Liza Nash Taylor takes readers from New York City to Paris on a daring adventure that will unravel a dark secret of the past. Dun, 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 dun. That's like Bob Brandon when he's trying to figure out how to get your website up and active all the time. Too many businesses, they, they go out there and they find maybe an employee or a best friend that'll help them build a website, and then you walk away wondering, okay, well, it'll do what it does. It is what it is. No, 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 no. That website has got to work for you. Quit giving all the money to, to Amazon and Walmart. It's time to get your website working. BobBrandon.com. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Liza Nash Taylor. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's a pretty exciting day. Absolutely. It should be for you because you've done something here that really paints pictures inside the imagination of those that are trapped in COVID-19 or just a, they're just trapped in a summer that is coming to an end and they need an escape. You are so right. You are so right. And a book is a very good way to escape, especially if it's written in another in another time period. Well, and that time period is is a hundred years ago, and the way that you the research you must have put into this, be, because I mean, you you it's one of those things where you see pictures of the nineteen twenties and everything is black and white. Why is it then that I see colors inside this book? Inside the book? Yeah. In, in other words, it's like the the pictures that you paint with your words. I I don't feel like I'm in a black and white world, like I'm looking at photos. I feel like that you're you're making this world come back to life. What a nice thing to say. Well. um... Um, you just made my day. Uh, I do do a lot of research, and I find it fascinating. You know, people will say, oh, you write historical fiction, you have to do all that research. But that's the most fun part to me. And when I'm researching, I'll come across things I call Easter eggs. And sometimes it's just a small detail that will come off as, as a little aside in the plot, or sometimes you find something, a historical event or a person, and it just turns the whole plot on its axis. Do you ever find yourself, when you do the research, with you going back to the 1920s and everything like that, do you ever find yourself where it is speaking directly to you, like it's been waiting for you to catch up to it? You know, in a way, that is true. I, I had the, I, I've heard other authors tell me that their characters just speak through them, and they're basically sort of channeling their characters when they write. And, and when I first heard people say that, I thought that's kind of woo-woo. But then it actually did happen to me where I had a, a character in my next book coming up, and she sort of popped into my head. And as I was doing research, I kept coming up with details that would apply to this character that was sort of knocking and not going away. And then finally I gave her a name and... and um, she ended up being one of the main characters in the book. <laughs> I love it when it plays out like that. Well, May Marshall, May Marshall goes home to to her father's land, and she finds out that this thing has turned into a moonshine enterprise. Now, the reason why this caught my attention so quickly is because I'm here in the South. Moonshine is is the way that this whole entire area survived for so many, so many years. Yes, you're exactly right. And I'm in Albemarle County. Virginia, and the book is set here at the house where I live, which was built around 1825, and there were a lot of moonshiners around here. There was one named Bo Shiflett, and he operated out of Bacon Hollow, and he was known as the King of the Blue Ridge, and so he had to have a little cameo in the story. 
but also in Franklin County, Virginia, which is about two hours from here, um, Franklin was known as the moonshine capital of the world during, during Prohibition. It, it's it's amazing how you're bringing this story forward up to 2020 because you know the 20s were 1920s were such a a, a time in history that that people want to know more about but Hollywood has only given us you know the flappers and all that kind of stuff where people are dancing around or we or we don't get that fully painted photograph like you're giving us because you you put so much life in May here in the way that she does break away from her father's moonshine enterprise but she runs off to New York does she go up there to become an actress no she gets into costume design it's like man that's a modern day story here liza <laughs> well my background is in fashion design i work for ralph lauren oh, God. see now there you go so you're telling your own story inside your book here then <laughs> well not <laughs> you know there are a little bits but i'm not going to tell you which ones but no um no we you know i think a lot of writers call on their own experience and um and in a way, writing a book was very much like uh, it was as creative as, as creating a garment. There's a little bit of draping and a little bit of mathematical pattern making and then a lot of tweaking and, and um, trimming so that you hopefully end up with a harmonious whole. Um, so, so I do end up applying a lot of principles of fashion into my writing now b- bringing your book to life did did you hand write it out because I, I when i when i do my books i i go out and i buy a new mont blanc and that's the that's the only time i will use that writing instrument is when i do the book and then i put it away forever do you do things like that too as do you, do you have any sort of little little things like that about you as a writer oh i love that you buy a new pen i think that's fascinating i use a pilot pen from the grocery store but it has to be a certain one with a certain kind of tip and then I, I only use a certain kind of legal pad um, that I get online in packages of five and has heavier paper than a regular legal pad. But I, I generally write on the computer and on my laptop, and I don't write uh, sequentially. I'll write separate scenes, and then I end up writing backwards and forwards and cobbling them together or, you know, dropping what doesn't work. But, um, yeah, some people are plotters, and they'll write the whole outline from the beginning and never vary. Um, but I'm kind of a hybrid, writing by the seat of my pants and plotting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you talked about the texture of the paper, because I, I, I'm with you on that, because I ha- it has to be the right paper. And what it is, it's one of those sketch pad books, is what it hard. And so that's what I usually write everything in, because the, the paper means so much to me, and, and my imagination has got to be happy, or the words don't come out. Yes, exactly. No, I found one from Levenger, and the the lines are completely the right height, and um, and it just has such a it makes everything seem more important as you're writing it. So now, why why this particular uh, time period? Because I mean, I mean, if, if all the places that you could have taken us, I mean, the, we, we you settled in on this one right here. Is it because that you're up there in Virginia and that and you've got so much history of the moon shining? Well, that is a big part of it. As I said, I decided to set the the book here um, at my old house. So I was constrained within the the time period of the house, so like 1830 to present. And there was so much going on around Albemarle County during Prohibition era that it seemed like a natural, you know, that there would be a lot of stories to pull from. And then another thing that cemented me into that time period was that the whole Paris section of the book 
um, came about when I read about Josephine Baker's debut in Paris in 1925. Um, so that kind of cemented me right there in 1924 and 25. There's, there's so many different textures in the way that it's like, this is not a, a book for women. This is not a book for men. It's a book for everybody. And you create it in a way to where I think it's going to create conversation between, be, between people. And it's going to reach beyond the book clubs. Well, thank you. I certainly hope so. Now, do you find yourself uh, turning this into a binge-watching uh, series on Netflix or Hulu, or do you, or when somebody knocks on your door, you'll take up a movie deal? <laughs> oh, what a wonderful problem to have. Um, <laughs> I, I, I could see it as a series, I think, and... Um, I think Elle Fanning would be good to play May, and <laughs> Carrie Washington would be great to play Janie. <laughs> do you, do and you, I only know that because somebody else on radio asked me, and I had to come up with an answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you do that with your characters? Because I, I did, when, back in the 1980s, when, when I was fresh out of high school and I was I was starting to put the the paragraphs together, I, I would I would go and I would cut out pictures of actors, and I'd say, okay, you're going to be this character, you're going to be this character, and and so when I would write in the storylines, I'd be looking at them. Yes. I do the same thing. I'm very visual also, and I have a big bulletin board in my writing studio that has photographs from the era. And, for instance, my, copy, my, my character Rocky, I envision, is looking like the handsome young Duke Ellington. Um, you know, so yes, I do exactly what you do. Yeah, one of these days, um, my, one of my books is going to become a movie. I, and, you know, Johnny Depp has been used so many times as a picture. So it's like, yes, I've got I've to use him a lot in, in a movie or something. Oh, yes. <laughs> Can't go wrong with Johnny Depp starring in your movie. Now, here's the thing about writers is that that when when to, like today your your book is relinquished to everybody. Everybody's getting it. It no longer belongs to your creative process. It, it you wrote it, but it doesn't belong to you. Did you go through a mourning period realizing this flowed through you and now it belongs to us? That is such a perceptive question. Because, you know, that's one thing I didn't anticipate about all of this. I, I um, Someone said, oh, you must be so excited. I said, actually, I feel like I've just sent my toddler to cross a busy intersection alone, naked. And I'm just watching. You know, I was nervous for my 92-year-old dad to read the book. Um, but he did, and, and he didn't disown me or anything, so... <laughs> and what, so what, what are you working on now then? Because, I mean, you know, you can't turn this stuff off. There's no way. Well, um, yes, you're, yes, thank you. I'm working on pre-publication edits for my second novel, which comes out next August, uh, for, again from Blackstone Publishing, and it's going to be a standalone sequel to Etiquette for Runaways. See, now that's good to know because, you know, that's one of the things that's hot right now, man, the sequels and stuff like that, because people want to, they, they want to start a journey. They want to start that, you know, it's like binge watching TV, like we talked about. People want to start at the beginning and they want to be carried forward. Yes, you're right. It's so true. And I think we're, um, you know, since we've all been home in quarantine, I think we, we, we like to get hooked and binge watch a series uh, and, and just lose ourselves in a continuing story. Now, when it comes to writing, do you have a writing place? And I, I, I have a writing window that I, I go to all the time. Is it what? Because writers usually have offices. They've got that place where they get to go and become. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm in my writing mode. 
I even have my riding clothes. I have these old Converse sneakers that I I have to wear them. But I, in the nice weather, I like to be on the upstairs porch of my old house with my dogs at my feet. But then I also have a little building on our property that was a bunkhouse, and it doesn't have plumbing, and it has sort of a, a combo heater air conditioner that either blows warm, tepid air that smells like like mildew or slightly cool air that smells like mildew. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now I've got to ask you a question that nobody else in the country is going to understand because we're both here in the South, okay? And that question is, is that, you know, you just talked about how you like going outside and stuff like that and having the scent. And, and I love writing. I, I live in this forest in South Charlotte, North Carolina. And the thing is, is the land giving you the energy and the story? Because I believe that the soil of the South is where it all comes from. Oh, that is a great, great question. You know, and I think you're right. I I, I was born and raised in Virginia, uh, in Virginia Beach, and I just love sitting on my porch and looking out at the Southwest Mountains, and I can see the mist come up among the evergreens in the morning and smell the hay when it's freshly cut. And that's just so evocative. You know, those details absolutely work their way into my writing. Would you like to meet that writer one time that gave you all that energy to become a writer? Yes. Yeah, me too. Who would yours be? You know, I, I, I really want to believe that the, the writer in me, because I, I, there's these rock formations about two miles from the house here that are, that are bigger than homes, and Native Americans live there, and I'm so drawn to that area that I actually believe that, that I'm not going to say a medicine man, I'm going to say that it was a child with a big imagination, and that, that he said, one day somebody's going to walk by here, and I'm just going to touch him on the, on the heel or something. Wow, that's great. I love that. What about yours? Well... Um, one of the things that sparked the character of May is in, you know, I told you our house is old, right. and when I'm digging in my garden or digging in the dirt, I will very often find things like antique bottles and pieces yes. of old rusty hardware and horseshoes, and I found a piece of broken porcelain that was a part of the face of a Victorian-era doll. Wow. And it was a little creepy, but I thought it was really neat, and it kind of spoke to me. And um, I, I thought when I found it, I wonder whose doll this was, and I wonder what that little girl's life was like here at Keswick Farm. And that piece of porcelain became a real part of the story, and uh, I knew I had to write about the little girl who loved that doll. Wow. Wow. That's, you just got to love being a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's got to be a website where listeners and readers can come to you to read, to find out more about the book, to buy the book, to, to find out more about you and give you lots of love and support. Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm at LizaNashTaylor.com and on Instagram and Facebook, I'm at Liza Nash Taylor. And I would love to hear from book clubs and love to have readers uh, uh, get in touch with me through social media or my website. And I expect to hear from you when that sequel comes out so that we can continue having a conversation. I'd love that. Excellent. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? Okay, you too. Thank you.